Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Stackhouse, and today we're going to be talking to Christian Ingrau about his new book, Believe and Destroy, Intellectuals in the SS War Machine. Christian, welcome to the show. Hi. Well, before we start off on the book today, I was hoping you could maybe tell us a bit about it yourself. So I'm a French historian. I was born in the middle of France uh, in the, in, uh, the beginning of the 70s. I'm... Uh, I attended my, my MN, BN, MA in uh, Clermont-Ferrand and in Paris, and then I, write, I wrote a PhD uh, in Amiens. So, but uh, in the meantime, I, was, I lived two years in Germany to, uh, to be able to, uh, to, write, to read the archives for my, my PhD thesis. How did you come to write Believe and Destroy? That was uh, Believe and Destroy is my PhD thesis. And uh, at the time, I was... Uh, uh, trying to find an object on which I could I could reach uh, on the meantime what the people believed and thought and what they were doing the discourses and the practices and I was looking for a group of people who uh, were able to uh, to be a good vantage point of it all the race security main office this this institution that was gathering and uh, uh, melting the Gestapo and the Sicherheitsdienst, the SS, the security service of the SS, was the, the ideal vantage point because all these people were formulating a Nazi ideal, ideology between uh, 1933 and 1939, and then uh, after the outbreak of war, they were able to put the discourse into practice and led these uh, groups of uh, security that uh, were uh, of central interest in the face of invasions of Europe. You talk about the war as a sort of defining experience for the generation of the men who went in the SS. Could you tell us a bit more about that? The idea of the book and of my thesis was to write a kind of a a uh, history of the experience in German Erfahrungsgeschichte, uh, history of the experience of quite a generation of people who were born between uh, 1900 and uh, 1910 uh, in Germany. And this, this, uh, this generation of people who is called the generation of the youth of the world, Kriegsjugendgeneration, that was people who were not able to, to fight on the front, but who lived uh, and experienced the war as kids. And uh, this particular experience was, uh, I think, uh, from, uh, had a central interest to understand what was the nazism, what was national socialism, socialism and what was the internalization of national socialist belief. The problem for the historian is to, to find the sources in which we can reach the, the childhood of these people. And it's really really difficult. The only uh, source we can rely on is this um, biography all these people have had to write when they entered the SS, when they, they were a candidate to, to enter to, in, the, in the Black Order, and 
this uh, document where uh, Lebenslauf, that's a kind of a life narrative of a curriculum vitae or a, a resume. And uh, in these, um, these sources, these people try to, uh, to describe what was their childhood, but that's, that's, that's never, that is never the, the, the center of interest of this, uh, of this, this document. So we have to rely on a really thin uh, kind of information. What we can say is that the entire German society had very special experience of war because on one hand, uh, that was a paradoxical one. Uh, on one hand, the German waged the war uh, really deep into French territory. They were apparently the aggressor. On the second hand, the Allied, the Entente, organized a blockade that had a deep impact on the German society. And after uh, 1970, 1916, the economic conditions in Germany worsened. That was not a question of, uh, of starvation, but that was a question of uh, having health problems, sanitary issues, etc. All the people had the impression that the Entente, okay, the French and uh, uh, and uh, Great Britain had the intention not perhaps to uh, only uh, try to, um, to win the war, but also to uh, reduce as much as possible the German population. The, the war that was that happened waged at this time was in the German perspective a war against the civilians, the women and the children, because that was a blind war. Uh, one of the most uh, uh, critical issues I want to raise in this book is that uh, uh, at some point the German society and the children I'm talking about uh, internalized an apocalyptic anxiety, an eschatological anguish that was uh, one of the most uh, critical issues in the German society after the war. The idea of it all was that issue, what was at stake in the war was not only a political or a geopolitical uh, matters, but the enemy was waging a war against uh, uh, Germany, and a Weltfeind, a world of enemy, was waging a war which uh, aim was not was not only to, to, to fix a problem, but to, to reduce as much as possible the German uh, essence and the German existence. So the point is that uh, the German had the feeling that uh, all our existence was, was at stake at this, at this moment. And in every country, there was a sort of mass communication from the society uh, in direction to, uh, to childhood. And in Germany, this message and this uh, apocalyptic anguish was expressed to the children and they internalize the thing. The school years come across is very important as this generation that grew up in the war was coming of age, really. What, what happened in university that was so important? The transition between school and university is really important because that was the, the years in which uh, Germany lost the war and the way out of war was really specific in Germany because when the French uh, stopped the war, uh, okay, uh, there is uh, an armistice, uh, 
peace uh, tractations, etc. And all the people come back from the front, go into the, the resident houses and uh, put down the weapons and uh, 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 get back their, uh, their civilian clothes and get back to societies. In Germany, that's not the case. In Germany, when the, the, the war ends, the regiments come back in the society, but with all their um, uh, light weapons. That means that 5 million of uh, guns, machine guns, uh, pistols, uh, uh, hand grenades, uh, knives, etc., just invade German society. All these people come back with all their, uh, their weapons. That's uh, widespread the violence that was uh, till now concentrated on the front is widespreading in the society. The difference between uh, the years before the war and the year after the war is the following. When you take a group of students, a group of uh, uh, conservative students and a group of social democrat students that meeting in the street of, uh, of a German town, before the war, they are just, uh, they are just uh, fighting with, uh, with fists. After the war, these students, we, when, you, when you think about uh, uh, such an episode, the students are uh, veterans of the, of the First World War, and they, they, are, they have guns with them, and they don't, they don't fight with fists. They fight with knives, they fight with guns, they fight with uh, machine guns. And um, that's what the, the U.S. historians call the brutalization of the society. The society gets used to, to brutality and to violence, and the resolution of the, the social conflicts is more armed than ever. So that's exactly what happens to the, um, the, the academic world in the, in the immediate after war. During this period, the, the students uh, were mobilized by two uh, really big issues. The first one was um, the, the civil trouble that took place uh, in the east on the German-Polish border, uh, in the Baltic states, in the north uh, on the Danish-German uh, border with uh, the communist revolution in Berlin, but also in Thuringe, in the Ruhr, and the independentist uh, troubles uh, in, uh, in Rhineland. So, the global overview of this trouble uh, seems to confirm uh, the fact that uh, there, there was a world of enemy waging war, war against uh, Germany, that uh, uh, during this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this, this lapse between uh, 1918 and 1924, the students were led to um, experience a nationalization that was really, um, really radical they became radical because every item of the, the social mobilization during the war time was, uh, was reaffirmed by, uh, after the war. During four years, all these people, all these children had uh, heard that uh, this war had the destiny of German, Germandom at stake. And what happened after the Versailles Peace Treaty after the peace treaty, the threats uh, 
uh, didn't vanish uh, in the eyes of the of, of the German students. Uh, uh, there was a threat everywhere. There was uh, the communist threat within the German society. There was uh, uh, a threat outside the German society with the Polish uprising in 1990. There was the threat of the communists in the Baltic state. There was a threat, the Danish threat uh, uh, in the north in the Schleswig-Holstein. There was a uh, um, there was a, the, the French and the Belgian threat uh, with the invasion of the Ruhr and the uh, Rhineland. So the really anguishing uh, uh, war culture that, was, uh, that had been widespread during the war seemed to be true and seemed to be uh, justified by the, uh, by the fact. So we can watch a process of radicalization of the German student movement in Germany. All these people who were children between 1914 and 1918, who were becoming uh, teenagers and then students, um, had experienced uh, radicalization. This radicalization can be shown uh, by the, the dynamic of um, uh, the evolution of the, uh, of the student movement. Between 1919 and 1921, we can watch in almost every uh, German university the Völkisch movement, the ethno-nationalistic movement, uh, win the elections uh, association whose main objective was to uh, pull the, the, the Jewish elements outside uh, the university. That's a sign of the nationalization of the of of the German student, because you had on one hand a core of uh, really uh, radical people who were militant, who uh, were fighting for the the success of these uh, ethno-nationalistic uh, positions, but in the meantime you had elections in which uh, eighty percent of the student population were participating and uh, the, the, these, uh, these uh, Turkish, these uh, ethno-nationalistic students uh, won the election at uh, more at, of, the, of two-thirds of the, of, of the votes every election. That means that already in these uh, uh, years, uh, between uh, 1919 and 1924, the anti-Semitic belief and uh, racial nationalism was spread in more than the half of the students. And we can ask the question of the, the fate of the uh, Weimar Republic when you, you know that uh, uh, these young elites were already ready to, uh, to, uh, to eliminate it and to uh, replace this republic with an authoritarian regime. Uh, already in uh, 1919 or 1924. One of the things I really like about this book is how you show the connection between student activism and scholarship. What was that connection for the SS generation? The university at this time, the German university at this time, is a really complex world uh, in which you can articulate and bind a really scientific uh, uh, way and, uh, and the formation and uh, uh, really political militancy. You can, uh, in the meantime, 
uh, work hard on a PhD or a uh, magister arbeit, uh, 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 master work, master thesis, and uh, uh, in the meantime, be one of the most leading uh, elements of the of the National Socialistische Studentenbund of the League of National Socialist Students. And there is no contradiction between both. Because in, um, in faculty like the geographical one or the historical one, you can articulate and uh, develop in the same step what you are thinking of, uh, of the, the German-Polish border and do in the same time a history of uh, or medieval, uh, medieval history of the German settlements uh, in this uh, in this region, German scholars in the in the nineties and uh, and, uh, and the, the the years after uh, have shown that uh, there was a a kind of um, they say uh, that was a, a science of legitimation legitimation that was uh, uh, developing itself and in which. Uh, German scholars uh, were uh, acting like uh, SS officers and uh, uh, in the meantime as uh, historians or geographers or sociologists. And there was uh, a kind of uh, political uh, commitment that was uh, through studies and through uh, uh, a career in the, in the SS or in the SD, etc., etc. There was a parallel between academic career and the militant career. And it, there was not a problem to act like a Nazi when you were when you were uh, in the in the university, and to act like an historian when you were in the security office of the SS. Yeah, it, from this youth uh, generation or war youth generation of, of activists, you get the SS security service, and then, as you say, that goes on to become the Reich Security main office. How how do ideas of struggle and control that you talk about shape that development? The, the, the question is to 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 study the, the activity of all these people, of these uh, young students who were uh, children during the, the First World War and uh, uh, and radicalized radicalized themselves in the in the years after the war. What was their main tasks and activities? Uh, in the in the Sicherheitsdienst, in the security office of the SD, and uh, the, the the first task was to develop the ideology and the way to deal with problems as Nazi. They tried to to conceive uh, uh, national socialist policies uh, in the uh, economic area, in the social area, and the racial area, and the and what they what they call the Lebensgebiet, the um, vital area. The, the Lebensgebiet was uh, a word to, to denominate uh, every area of the, the life of, of a population, a racial population. So that was a word that was, um, the, the Lebensgebiet was, was a word to legitimate the fact that the, the, the SS officers of the, of the Sicherheitsdienst uh, felt uh, to have the legitimation to give an advice in every uh, area of the li- of the life of a society. They were uh, able to um, to to give an advice or to conceal on the on the on the, the industry of the of shoes 
or of uh, leather or of uh, uh, weapons or uh, on the the the, the racial uh, legislation etc they they could intervene in everywhere and they tried that their, it was their duty to deepen Nazi ideology and practice in every uh, area of the society and life of the society. So that was the task of the uh, SD Inland, this uh, security service of the interior of the Germany. And on the second hand, there was a second uh, service in the, the security service that was a, a classical intelligence service. So the historians, the jurists, the um, economists, the philosophers, the linguists that, that were involved in the, uh, in, the, in the security service were working on all these issues uh, after the, 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 the National Socialist uh, uh, seizure of power uh, between uh, 1933 to, till uh, 1939. Yeah, the the beginning of the war in 1939 really seems to open up a world of possibility for these men. Yeah. How did how did the SS intellectuals think about the East? The question of the, the outbreak of war is a really interesting question because when we um, get into the, the the archives and the documentation these people left behind them, we can see that. Uh, um, the war that's, uh, that's rising in '39 is a war of revenge. They think the war against Poland exactly with the same mental tools that they did for the war in the summer 1914. It fits into the same narrative of a continuation of the First World War. Exactly, exactly. They, they, these people have the feeling that they are... Uh, waging the war again at the exact point as the as they left it uh, in nineteen eighteen. Uh, uh, let me just give an example. Um, all these people we are talking about uh, are involved uh, in the practice of the uh, fourth wave of invasion in Poland. The first wave, you know what is a, you know what is a, 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 a Kriegs, Blitzkrieg, huh? a guerre éclair. Uh, Lightning war. The first wave is uh, uh, aircraft that are bombing. The second one is an armor, the wave of invasion with tanks, which breaks the defense system of the enemy. The, set, the third uh, wave of his invasion is uh, motorized infantry, the people who uh, move uh, with vehicles but uh, who are fighting at foot. And, uh, but the Nazi have a fourth wave. And the fourth wave is uh, elements of the police and uh, the security service, motorized as well, and whose task is to uh, take the control of the territories, towns, and, uh, um, and the buildings uh, uh, of, the, of the political power of every town uh, they are sizing. This uh, group are called Einsatzgruppen. These uh, groups of interventions uh, existed already in uh, Austria, uh, in the Sudets, Sudetenland? In Western Czechoslovakia. Okay, Western Czechoslovakia, thank you. 
and the rest of the, the of the Czech Republic that was invaded in uh, 1939. In Poland, the thing will change radically. The Einsatzgruppen in Poland will kill in six weeks 12,000 people. And when you see in the documentation the way they are legitimating um, uh, the, the killing of these uh, 12,000 people, you see that there is two main legitimation. The first one is that the Einsatzgruppen mentioning the existence of Oh, partisans. Yeah, but I don't want to use the word partisan because there is difference between uh, the, between the frontier and partisan in the in the Nazi mentality. The sources are mentioning not partisan but frontier, freischaller, uh, uh, sharpshooters. Okay, something like that. These sharpshooters. Uh, where people who had survived uh, the three first wave of invasion, uh, aircrafts, um, uh, tanks, and uh, and uh, and infantry, and we, who were taken prisoners by the the Einsatzgruppen, and the the SS officers of the Einsatzgruppen told these people, okay, you didn't give up with the first, uh, second, and third wave of invasion. You were still fighting when we. When we came, so you are this kind of partisan. We have the right to you, uh, to shoot you, and they did it. This rhetoric and this practice was not uh, entirely new in 1939. Uh, during the invasion of North France and Belgium uh, in the summer 19, uh, 1914, the German Imperial Army uh, used to uh, eliminate. Uh, thousands of civilians and of um, uh, of people with the accusation of being frontierer uh, or sharpshooters. So what I'm trying to say here is that this war, this war against Poland, was really a war that was waging with the the same tools at uh, than the, the 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 First World War. The people who we are dealing with were uh, children that internalized all these rhetorics uh, during the Weimar Republic because the controversial question of the, the existence of the, this Freischaller was a central issue in the discussion on the German responsibility uh, in, the, in the outbreak of the First World War. So all these people during this childhood, during their childhood, had internalized all this rhetoric and they were just mobilizing them again when they had to legitimate in front of their uh, of their crew and their and their and their people uh, the the fact that they had to kill again. But uh, you know that this uh, this revenge dimension of the war was not was not limited to the the campaign against against Poland. When you think about the campaigns against France. You'll see that the um, armistice, the, the stop of the hostility that was uh, signed in June 1940, was signed exactly in the same railway wagon 
that was used in 1918, the only document that the uh, SS commandos were looking for in the French archives in Paris and in all these uh, locations in which they were, hide, they were hidden was the Traité, the Versailles Treaty. So there is, uh, there is a, a vindication dimension in the, in, in the war that we are waging the Germans that was really important. They had the feeling that they had to um, end the First World War that had not been ended, that had not be, been ended uh, in, uh, in, in 1918. So the continuation of war into the East, there's also an opportunity for them to create something new, right? Yeah, yeah. This, this war against Poland, this war is giant space. Uh, because that's, uh, there is a phase that's turned uh, into the past. It, it's a war of, uh, of vengeance. Uh, it's a war of, um, that's here to, to end, finally, uh, the one which uh, broke out uh, in 1914. But in the meantime, the conquest of the, te the Polish territory uh, is opening a new era for... Uh, for the German uh, uh, leadership. In the week after the, the, the invasion, Hitler uh, announces that he wants to reorganize the ethnic relationships within Europe. That's his own words. And he uh, delegates the task of, the, of, of this uh, reorganization to Himmler. Himmler will create a whole bunch of institutions whose task will be to prepare this uh, new German hero after the war. In Mein Kampf, Hitler had formulated a project of um, racial and social renewal of the German society, of the Nordic society. And uh, with the invasion of Poland, the Nazi hierarchy had the feeling that time were, has come to uh, make the utopia come true. They create this race security main office whose task will be to ensure the security and to enforce uh, racial uh, law and, uh, and decisions into the whole European uh, societies. On the second hand, the National Socialist Hierarchy will create an agency whose name is Reichskommissar für die Festigung Deutschland Volkstum. That means uh, the Imperial Commissariat for Strengthening of German Dome. That's uh, one of the most interesting institutions because it gathers the energy of already existing institution. The first one is the Office of the Race of the Settlement, uh, Rusha which is uh, um, uh, an agency whose task is to uh, implement Russian expertise. Uh, so the, the people who are uh, involved in this uh, institution are physicians who have a, a Russian background, a Russianologist background. They uh, studied with uh, Hans Günther and uh, all these uh, scientific of the races who are uh, active in, uh, in Jena or in Berlin, etc., etc. So they can submit people to Russian expertise and assess them on a scale 
from the, the, the high above in which you are able to, to become an SS, so uh, uh, a, a member of the racial elite of the First Reich, to the bottom in which you are a, a Jewish people and you don't have uh, the right of a decent existence in the First Reich. So, this Reichskommissariat uh, of Strengthening Germdom, RKDF, mobilized this agency to implement huge social engineering operation, uh, not in all the territories that were uh, invaded by the, by, by the German, but in these territories that were, that had, had to be uh, incorporated in the German Reich. In these territories, the German policies was really simple. They had to expel people who were non-willed, that they didn't want, that they rashly didn't want, so Polish people, Jewish people, etc. And in the meantime, Hitler had a, a really rational policy, diplomacy policy, to negotiate with all the countries in Eastern Europe the repatriation of people that were called the Volksdeutsche, the ethnic Germans, and uh, that were meant to become the, the pawns of the Germanization policy. They were, they were seen as uh, people of German culture and German language and German race, and they had to be uh, uh, resettled uh, in this occupied territory, in this incorporated territory, to Germanize them. So that was, uh, that was the policy the, 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 the Nazi implemented in this uh, incorporated territories, but the, 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 the most important part of Poland was not this territory. That, was ter that were territories uh, uh, with uh, Warsaw, Krakow, uh, Lublin, Radom, etc., what we call the Congress Poland, the Poland of the Congress. Um, uh, these territories were not couldn't uh, be Germanized uh, in, in the following years in the eyes of the, of, of the German leadership. So a so-called general government was built for this uh, territory. This was a colony. Uh, the name of the general government was uh, uh, taken from the French Gouvernement Général in Algeria. So that was really a colonial entity which was uh, uh, given to Hans Frank a jurist, one of the, one of the most uh, uh, close collaborators of Hitler. This territory was uh, a, a kind of trash territory for, uh, for the SS. And uh, they used this territory to uh, unsettle uh, Slav people, Polish people uh, and uh, Jewish people from this incorporated territory uh, around Posen or Łódź. They deport these people uh, in the regions uh, around Varsovie and uh, Łódź and uh, Lublin. The people we are uh, talking about, these uh, 80 uh, doctors and uh, philosophers and historians and, uh, and jurists who conceived this policy and implemented them uh, had the feeling that they were beginning uh, to uh, make the utopia come through. They were deeply convinced that uh, 
the dynamic that was uh, uh, taking place here was a dynamic that could realize the thousand-series Reich, uh, the millennial empire. And they were so more convinced of this, uh, of this thing when uh, began the preparation of the invasion of USSR. Because in this time, the planification of the Germanization of Europe was not only uh, the one of Poland, but the one of the entire Eastern Europe. The, the invasion of USSR is, uh, in this perspective, um, a real challenge for all these people. First, it is an economical and logistical challenge, and everybody is aware of it. The German leadership and the leadership of Wehrmacht take a really uh, important decision in February to uh, in February and March uh, 1941 um, that no food will come from Germany to to this uh, uh, army of invasion. That means that uh, five millions of people of this army will have to uh, feed themselves on the uh, territory that they are invading. The consequence of it is that, uh, I quote the, the, the archive, that 10 billions of people have to starve. Six millions mentioned sollen verhungern. Dozens of billions of people have to starve to death uh, to let the army to, uh, to, to, to feed them, to feed itself. So the point is that we have another scale in the in the in the in the German violence here. Not only uh, mass shooting, not only reprisal, not only anti-Semitic uh, law and uh, and and uh, and progression, but this time, for the first time, I think, a rational decision to eliminate more than, than, than 8 to, to 10 million of people in USSR. The Nazi plan is to let the, the, the Soviet cities of the Eastern USSR starve, to surround them and to avoid that people can break out and to avoid that food can go in the, in the cities, so that the entire urban population of this uh, uh, eastern fraction of the USSR would be decimated. We have to think about it because we know that uh, um, during the, the, the Tsaristic Empire, the anti-Semitic legislation allowed only to Jewish people to live in all these towns of the western part of USSR. So when the, the Germans take this decision to decimate the, the, the human population of the western part of USSR, they are condemning practically to death the German communities in USSR. The people we are dealing with are aware of this dynamic and they will carry out the, the organization of the Einsatzgruppen in USSR. We know that the the one in Poland killed uh, 12,000 people in six uh, weeks, but uh, there is a, another push in the statistic of the Einsatzgruppen in USSR. They don't exist for uh, six weeks, but for six months. 
uh, they don't kill 12,000 people, they kill uh, 550,000 people between uh, the 22 of June, 41, and uh, uh, 31 of December, the 30, 31st of December, 1941. So the question is to, to try to understand First, the role played by the SS intellectuals in this dynamic, in this genocidal dynamic. And second, how evaluate the practice of the Einsatzgruppe. And I think that uh, we can first assess that uh, there was a turning point in August 41, uh, in which the Einsatzgruppe do not, henceforth, uh, do, do not um, uh, kill uh, only uh, Jewish men, but will begin to to kill women and even more children. At this time, we go out from a, a, a violence that was conceived by the by the Nazi, the SS officers that were leading the Einsatzgruppen as a, a, a war, a, a violence of war, a violence that aimed to neutralize the danger of insecurity in the back of the fighting troops to a violence that aimed to the total annihilation of a community. What is interesting is that in this chapter of the book, we can try to follow uh, uh, really precisely the way these people, these intellectuals of the, uh, of the SS were mobilized to convince the people where they were leading to involve themselves in the murder of children and women. That's the, the murder of children and women is never an evidence, never uh, something which is easy or normal, etc. Even for the worst and the, and the most cruel Nazi, that's always a, a problem, an issue. And uh, that's not really uh, a surprise. Uh, the people who were leading all these, these groups who will carry out this transgressive task, that is the genocide of women and children, were people who had uh, studied history, philosophy, literature, uh, etc. Because all these people were the only one who had the rhetorical know-how to convince the people that the murder of women and children was a synecdoche task. If uh, if the people if 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 the the, the member of the Einsatzgruppen wanted to um, to work uh, toward the invention of this uh, of the thousandjährigen Reich. So, I think this is hands down one of the best parts of the book is the way that you deal with the psyche of the SS intellectuals during this process. How did members of the SS experience that violence? They experienced the violence as uh, an unavoidable but transgressive task. They were, uh, on one hand, uh, absolutely convinced that they had nothing to do but to kill all these people, that it was an historical task and an unavoidable one if they wanted to, to, to see the advancement of the, of the millennial empire. But in the meantime, they were also convinced that killing women and children was the most horrible task they will face in their entire life. 
So there was an articulation between the, the, the horrific situation in which they believed to, to be and the um, uh, Nordstand, the, the situation of emergency and the fact that, that all these things, all this horror were unavoidable, were, were unavoidable and they had to, to get through them to be able to, uh, to, to give a future to their children and, and, and the rest of the society. The, the, that was the articulation that was the, 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 the most important structure of it. They, they had two ways to legitimate the genocide. The first one was, it's me or him. It's us or them. And the genocide and uh, the, the, the way to, the, 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 the policy to keep, to, to kill uh, women, men, women and children was legitimized, for example, by the, the, the carpet bombing that were uh, taking place in Germany. Um, uh, the, the leaders of the Einsatzgruppen uh, were mentioning the, 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 this, this bombing to, 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 to convince their crew that uh, they were waging war against Jews, but the Jews were waging war against us uh, through the Barber Command, through uh, the uh, Royal Air Force or the USAF, etc., etc. So the, the racial determinism was a way to interpret the war that was establishing an equality between the Jewish people who were dying on the, in front of the pit in Ukraine, uh, in front of the anti-machine guns, and the German women and children that were that were burning in the in the in the bombs uh, uh, under the bombs the the, the Britannic uh, the, the English and American bombs in uh, in Germany. So that was only allowed by the social by, by the racial determinism. What was that was the core of Nazi belief. And the only people who were really um, able to do this atrocious parallel were these SS intellectuals and they, they, they managed that what they had to do in the sense that uh, no uh, member of the Einsatzgruppen were uh, refused to, uh, to do what they had to do, no member of the Einsatzgruppen to put in question what the, what the, what the group had to do. Yeah, I really enjoyed the the last part of the book where you were you were going through this process of how how really they're processing almost on an individual level all the all the different ways they were justifying it to themselves. After they stay in Russia and in USSR, uh, all these people had uh, really different destinies. There was a group of them that uh, could not stand the horrific experience that was the genocide, and they they ended in alcoholism, depression, etc. So uh, that's a really uh, tiny group. But um, uh, all these people could not stand the, 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 the this atrocious experience. Uh, most of the people we are dealing with were people who were not volunteer, who did not volunteer for for these uh, these tasks, and uh, after. Uh, a stay between uh, between twelve to eighteen months in USSR. They went back in Berlin, and they they had shown that they had the strength to to commit themselves to uh, the most uh, atrocious consequences of the national socialist policies. And there were uh, people on which uh, the Third Reich could rely on. 
So they had a promotion and they became the head of uh, the race security main office uh, agency for uh, for people or uh, uh, or uh, uh, they uh, became the head of the Gestapo or the SDA for France or Italy, etc., etc. So most of the people we are dealing with promoted after the genocide. And there was a third uh, group of people that were so excellent in the, in the genocidal tasks and in the mass murder that they became specialists of it. So when the third rush collapsed, these three groups will face, will face the, 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 the allied inquiries most of them won't be won't be sized by the uh, by the Allied. Um, a group of uh, 22 or 23 Einsatzgruppen uh, uh, leaders have been judged in Nuremberg. Most of them were uh, sentenced to death. But um, the evolution of the geopolitical situation between uh, 1945 and 1952 led. Uh, the American uh, institutions to um, to uh, make that all these uh, death sentences were commuted uh, in life sentence and then to uh, time sentence and all these people were uh, released really soon in this in this in the in the fifties. Some of these people were gifted enough to. Um, to uh, avoid the uh, the condemnation and the sentence, and uh, were released the, in the in the sixteen. One of the most uh, high rank general SS general Otto Ullendorf uh, chose to face his fate and uh, uh, chose to um, deal with his own uh, guiltiness uh, in, in the face of the American tribunal uh, in Nuremberg. And uh, that was a, a suicidal ch- choice he made, he made. And he assumed the thing and he, he had been executed in 19, uh, uh, 1942, I think. So the uh, first group of people were the group of people who were who was facing guiltiness. And uh, that's a group of two or three people. And they said, OK, I did it. We uh, we." We, we did the genocide, and we did the genocide for this and this and this reasons. And this, this choice that consists in, uh, um, in, in standing through the, the, the guiltiness and the responsibility is a really rare one. I already met him in two cases. The second one, uh, which is a choice of, um, of um, flight uh, from guiltiness, is to, to say, okay, I was, uh, I, I, I acted upon orders or um, uh, I didn't know that it was, uh, uh, that it was what, uh, what was uh, asked to me uh, or um, uh, I was not exactly uh, 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 involved uh, in the way you are describing, etc., 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 was the most uh, used strategy of uh, defense of the people uh, of the uh, of the of these SS intellectuals, and uh, it worked. 
most of the time because after um, the uh, American uh, trials, the German institution tried to uh, prosecute all these things and um, set up a, a legal framework that was really a, a, a hard one. Namely, um, the German prosecutor could only uh, prosecute these uh, crimes with the laws, the, the criminal laws of 1937, the one that was in charge, in force, uh, during the facts. So, to be able to indict someone, you had to have the name of the criminal, the name of the victim, a date and a location. And that was almost impossible for a location like Babiya with uh, 3,300, uh, 300, uh, 371 victims and, uh, and to uh, articulate one of these 3,300 victims with Paul Blobel or uh, Kuno Kalzen or uh, any one of these, uh, these, these SS intellectuals was impossible uh, uh, as a legal issue. So even if the German institution um, made a real uh, impressive effort to put all these people into trial. The, the, all these uh, all these inquiries were not uh, had not uh, as as a, as a, uh, the, all these uh, the, all these uh, inquiries were not uh, followed by by trials. And uh, all the people we are dealing with were though uh, prosecuted, but most of them were not uh, tried. Well, Christian, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we draw everything to a close, could you tell us what you're working on now? I, um, I released a book for uh, some months on the National Socialist Utopia. The, the, the problem of, this, uh, of the time uh, between uh, the invasion of Poland and uh, some, somewhere or some uh, when... Uh, in the summer '43, in which um, the uh, SS officer we are dealing with uh, uh, did internalize the belief that uh, the time had come to build and to realize uh, the uh, Millennial Reich. And, um, and this book on uh, the Germanization and the realization of Utopia is one of my most important projects at the time. But I intend also to uh, begin inquiry on the relationship between national socialism and work, and all the, the, the dimension of work, with the work status, uh, uh, work representation, uh, ergonomy, uh, work, uh, welfare state, and national socialism, etc., etc. That's one of the projects I will involve myself in the following years. Well, hopefully we'll see that in English translation as well. I hope so. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you very much. Well, that does it for us here at New Books in German Studies. Once again, we've been talking to Christian N. Grau about his new book, Believe and Destroy, Intellectuals in the SS War Machine. It's available from Polity Books, published in 2013. And if you think you might be interested in picking up a copy, consider using the link in the blog post. It'll help Christian out, and it'll help us out here at the New Books Network. 
I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then. <laughs>